Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you have listened to our past podcast conversations. And if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcast, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and at any online book retailer you prefer. Check it out today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand, both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you're looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Bruce Tolkien is internationally recognized as a leading expert on the best practices of effective management, generational change, and young people in the workplace. Bruce is a best-selling author and advisor to business leaders all over the world and a sought-after keynote speaker and management trainer. Bruce has also written numerous best-selling books, including It's Okay to Be the Boss, Not Everyone Gets a Trophy, and 27 Challenges Managers Face, Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, and his new, recent, and hot-off-the-press book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work. I know in each of those books, bravery has played some type of role or has influenced some of the ways that people navigate today's workplace. So we're really thrilled to be speaking with you today. Bruce, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, It's an honor and a pleasure. Great. And, you know, I just did a brief intro of you, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you really came to do what you do today. Well, back in the early 90s, I was an unhappy lawyer at number two Wall Street. And uh, my, my condolences. Exactly. So I, I stuck that out for 428 days, which, um, you know, did require some courage, I must say. Uh, but the truth is, it required more courage to leave because, um, you know, I was living in New York City with my brand new wife uh, who was going to graduate school up in New Haven, Connecticut, where we now live. And uh, it took a lot of courage just to tell my parents that I was quitting my job at the law firm. <laughs> you know, I called up my parents and I said, um, hey, guess what? Uh, you know that great job I have? <laughs> I'm quitting it. And they said, after we just spent all that money putting you through law school? And, and they said, what, what are you going to go do? You know, I think they were hoping I was going to walk across the street and be an investment banker and get really rich. Uh, I said, oh, I'm going to write a book. And they were like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> well, that took a little bravery, I'm sure, to call your parents and make that announcement. Indeed. And then, you know, uh, letting the, the senior partners know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to go around and tell every single one of the senior partners, it was a relatively small firm, only about a hundred lawyers. And, um, uh, so, you know, and then I had to strike out on my own. I didn't have an income. 
and I had to do different things to pay the bills while I started interviewing young people. Uh, I had an idea to write a book uh, called What Your Young Employees Are Whispering About Over Lunch. You know, it was the early 90s, so the young people were Generation X. And I had gotten so far in it. The reason I quit the job is I thought, you know, this could be a book. And um, my first book was Managing Generation X. That's, that's uh, what the book turned into. And um, since then, uh, we've continued our in-depth interviews. So we interview people on the front lines of the workplace. All of our work is based on in-depth interview research. We've interviewed a half a million people from more than 400 organizations over the last 27 years. And we do in-depth ongoing interviews. So some of them last years. So you were an early career shifter. I know there are lots of people who explore specifically this experience people have where they stop doing what they're doing that and it was something that everybody thought that they were they were born to do and start doing something else. Did you know at the time that you were an early career shifter and you know what did it feel like? What was your motivation to leave this high paying Wall Street job and do something a little bit different? The truth is I didn't really think I was going to necessarily make a career as a lawyer. I was trying it out. Uh, in the sixth grade, uh, up until the sixth grade, I thought I would be a doctor like my father. But then we had to dissect a frog in the sixth grade and I threw up. And um, so then my parents said, oh, OK, you can be a lawyer. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, so um, in my family, I could have also been a teacher, but uh, those were pretty much the only options. So, um, you know, I went to law school and, and my parents were so uh, supportive and uh, wonderful that, you know, they they said, if you go right to law school, we'll we'll make that happen for you. We'll pay for it. And uh, so I didn't want to lose the opportunity. And then a, a mentor of mine told me, hey, you know, if you go to law school, you got to at least work as a lawyer for a while. So um, so, you know, and then I hoped I would like it. Uh, but I just, I, I find the law very interesting. I didn't find what lawyers do with the law very interesting. And, um, so when I started working on the book, um, or originally it was going to be an article, I started interviewing people and asking them about their working lives and careers and what their experience was at work, um, and uh, because, you know, Generation X at that time was, oh, Gen Xers are a bunch of disloyal slackers and all that stuff. So I, I that's why I thought the article would be interesting. Once I started interviewing people uh, about all the uh, about their experiences in the workplace, it made me really curious about it made me curious about that. And and wh what I began to realize is, oh, I think I have a book here. And then when the book came out, people started calling me because it was just the right thing at the right time, managing Generation X. And everyone started calling. So uh, that's a long way to say, no, I don't think I realized I was a career shifter. I was making it up as I go along. And jump the timeline a little bit, Bruce, and tell us what you do today and you know what your organization does. Yeah. So for 27 years now, ever since uh, I started in 1993, we've been doing in-depth interview research. All of our work is based on research. So we do a lot of custom uh, organizational assessment research. We do in-depth interviews with employees. We do talent assessments. We do organizational climate assessments. Um, and all of that data, uh, when I start to see a trend, uh, 
a problem and then start to identify a solution, then, then I write a book. So in some ways the books write themselves because we're so steeped in the research. And then uh, because the books have gotten some attention, uh, I've been going around giving speeches, you know, most of the last 25 years. Um, of course, uh, how'd you like to be in the business of selling hot air to aud auditoriums full of people right now? <laughs> um, so, you know, and traveling all over creation. So uh, most recently we put in a, a TV studio in our office. And so uh, we've been building a remote seminar business and we've been able to do our consulting remotely and our organizational research uh, remotely. Um, so, you know, we're a research training and consulting firm, but we're right now in the process of reinventing uh, the business based on the potential that we won't be able to be in proximity to lots of people anytime soon. Sure. Well, that sounds like an appropriate business strategy. And I'm wondering, Bruce, when you look at your new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, were there any specific patterns or trends that you saw that led to that book being created? Yeah. I mean, what's happening in the workplace uh, over the last 10 or 12 years is what I call a collaboration revolution. So uh, organizations are trying very hard to push authority and communication and coordination and cooperation down the chain of command. They want people to be working across silos, across functions, across teams uh, with their counterparts. Um, and often in those situations, lines of authority are not always clear. So uh, people are inundated by requests, uh, not just from their boss and their immediate team members, but from people all over the organization chart. Uh, people are inundated by requests and people are forced to rely on their colleagues all over the organization, often colleagues whom they can't hold accountable easily. So uh, this was the problem that I set out to solve. Uh, people were telling me, well, collaboration is great. It speeds up execution. Um, it, it, it puts everybody in a shared services mindset. Everybody is each other's customer, but it's driving each other crazy because, uh, you know, we're all driving each other crazy. It, it's driving everyone crazy because uh, people are fighting over commitment syndrome. So um, what I sought to figure out was what sets apart the people who are not going crazy in this situation, uh, the people who are thriving in the collaboration revolution, uh, the ones whom everyone describes as a go-to person and, and, you know, the indispensable go-to person uh, and, and the one who stands the test of time. And, you know, I, I thought, maybe the go-to person, the indispensable person would be the person who always says yes. But what I found out very quickly was, no, if you always say yes, then, you're, then you have overcommitment syndrome, then you're juggling, then you inevitably start letting people down. So that's when I realized it was an interesting puzzle to solve. It sounds like a very interesting puzzle to solve. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I commit to ordering it and reading it because it sounds truly fascinating. And when you think about the work that you've done, Bruce, and the research that you've done, and the you know thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that you've spoken to, I would imagine bravery comes up or plays a role. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, what words or phrases or thoughts come to mind when you think about bravery in the workplace? 
Yeah, it, 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 I've been thinking about that so much because I knew I was going to be talking with you. And what I keep thinking over and over again is probably the hardest questions I get from my clients and the hardest questions I get in my seminars, the, 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 the most authentic answer I can give people is you just got to have the guts to do it. And, you know, when I talk about what do you need to do? Uh, you need high structure, high substance communication. You need to align with your chain of command. You need to help people fine tune their requests. And you need to know when to say no. You need to know how to say yes. Um, and people often, they know that's true. And I say to them, what's the biggest obstacle that, that's going to get in the way of doing this? And, and, and almost always somebody will say, well, the biggest obstacle is going to be myself. Um, and, and, um, and, and when it comes to myself, usually when I drill down, well, it's okay, self-discipline, but a huge part of it is fear, uh, that I'm afraid I won't be good at it. Uh, I'm afraid people won't like me if I do it. Uh, I'm afraid, uh, that I'll, uh, you know, I'm afraid things will go wrong if I do what I know is right. I'm afraid things might go wrong. Uh, the other area, and I deal with this extensively uh, in the new book, um, is issues of integrity. Um, and my view is that integrity is not just not doing the wrong thing, but it's having the guts to do the right thing. And often that means when you see something wrong, having the guts to stand up. Well, there are a number of areas we can talk about and what you just discussed, Bruce, a couple I'd like to go back on. One is that, and this is consistent with other guests that we've had on the podcast, that oftentimes the biggest obstacle you have are, I think what you're describing, self-created obstacles, right? All these reasons that you create as to what might happen if you say something that needs to be said or do something that needs to be done, and they're always bad, right? There's always these negative outcomes. And so, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on, you know, the, the kind of world people live in where they create obstacles that they not even are sure will come true. Well, you're absolutely right that people uh, see the world as they are, not always as it is. Uh, but it's also true that the world is a dangerous place and people uh, can be mean and circumstances can be less than favorable. And sometimes uh, even if you do the right thing, uh, the reactions you get are capricious. So my view is that, uh, yes, a lot of people construct unnecessary fears, but I also think there's a lot to be afraid of in the world. And one of the things I've come to realize over the years is courage is not about convincing yourself that there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, courage is doing it even though you're afraid. And, um, you know, I always tell this story. Um, I, 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 my wife and I have been together 35 years, but we don't have children. Uh, but, uh, but we have played a huge role in, in the life of one of our nieces. And um, uh, she's spent a lot of time with us over the years, especially the first eight years of her life. And um, uh, one time I, was, I took her swimming and uh, at a great big public pool. 
and, uh, the, and you know, there was a big high dive and there was a long line of kids, uh, you know, filling up the ladder and then waiting for their turn to get on the high dive. And then, um, and, and, uh, I was waiting down there for my niece and she was in line. Um, and, and one little girl, you know, was up on the high dive and you could see she was terrified and, uh, she began to rethink this plan, but <laughs> you know, but there was a long line of kids, uh, on the ladder and going out and it, and, and so she starts yelling. And of course, I'm sure it wouldn't have been the first time everyone had to get off the ladder. So a kid could, could, could <laughs> rethink their choice. Um, but this little girl starts yelling down, grandma, grandma. And I, and I noticed, I could see where her grandmother was. And I thought, oh boy, what a bummer. And uh, she said, grandma, grandma, I'm too afraid. I'm too afraid. And I thought her grandmother was going to say, don't be afraid. But instead what she said was, be afraid, do it anyway. And I just <laughs> thought that was so cool. That is cool. And, you know, what you're describing speaks to what a lot of people feel in the workplace associated with either saying something that needs to be said or doing something that needs to be done, which is this internal feeling of fear and being afraid, yet finding the words. And I like what you said earlier about alignment in respect to organizational thoughts and structures to do it anyway, right? Because you believe that the outcome is more important than what you're feeling today, right? That the benefits that will come if in fact your boss isn't capricious and isn't mean, but listens and says, I appreciate that you said what you needed to say and I will look at that matter a little bit deeper, whatever the topic might be, that the outcomes are just greater than you know what you might be feeling going in. Yeah, exactly. And Ed, I'll tell you something. What, what, um, what you're describing is what I call playing the long game, because sometimes uh, doing the right thing in the short term does have negative consequences in the short term. You do get negative reactions. Somebody might be angry. Uh, somebody might be mean to you. You might lose out on something. Uh, but you've got to play the long game uh, of your reputation. Uh, and your integrity. Right. You use that issue of integrity earlier, and that's such a critical piece to anybody's motivation, which is thinking about, you know, what is it that this person needs to hear or be aware of that nobody else is saying? And how do I say it in a way that's respectful, but provides them some information that will be helpful? And if I feel good about that, then I'm honoring the integrity that I have with the organization, with my relationship, with myself and continue to move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so true. And one of the things I've learned is, you know, I've, I work with a lot of healthcare folks, um, including emergency medicine and surgical medicine, uh, but, you know, healthcare systems. Um, and, uh, uh, and I work with, but, but including um, um, uh, surgical nurses associations and emergency room nurses associations. And also in the military, I've done a huge amount of work with the United States Armed Forces. One of the things I've learned from, from uh, healthcare and from the military is some people, when they're afraid at work, it's because lives are on the line. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is also true of public safety folks, people in law enforcement, people in uh, firefighting. Um, and <clears throat> there's something really clarifying uh, about seeing how people deal with fear when lives are on the line. And um, one of the things I always tell my team here 
when they're afraid something might go wrong here in our own business um, is, uh, thank God, lives are not on the line. And, um, you know, we're going to do our very, very, very best. But if, if something goes wrong with our work, uh, nobody's going to die. Right. Well, I think that's where that phrase that we hear in the workplace often, you know, hey, Ed, it's not brain surgery, right? We're not doing something that requires, you know, 15 years of practice and, you know, hundreds of uh, prior patients in order to do. Just think about what you need to say, be respectful. And as you said earlier, just do it and hope that the person you're speaking to or working with isn't mean, capricious or doesn't take it in the wrong way. Yeah, that's so true. And by the way, you know, uh, uh, 99 out of 100 cases where you're afraid, your best strategy is to prepare in advance of whatever it is you need to do. Prepare. Uh, and if that means it's just a conversation, uh, uh, just a conversation can be very scary. So rehearse. Yeah, we talked about that with uh, prior guests who talk about accountability partners or mentors, somebody who you can go to and say, hey, I need to have a conversation with Ed. I want to give him some feedback on how people are experiencing him in meetings. I'd like to practice it with you, right? I'd like to just get it out because oftentimes as well, Bruce, it's what I say first that I worry most about because I think that as soon as I start talking, I'm watching body language, I'm watching the reaction, and if I'm not getting what I hope I'm going to get, I'm going to start falling apart and it's going to fumble and come, and it's just not going to be a great experience. So one way to navigate through that is to practice, right? To find somebody who you can give it a shot with. Yeah. Prepare in writing, rehearse. Um, and, and that's really true of almost anything that, um, uh, the more you, you prepare, uh, and also self-talk I think is extremely, uh, valuable technique. Fantastic. Well, Bruce, it has been terrific talking with you today. We thank you so much for your observations and thoughts about bravery and work. What are some ways that folks can get in touch with you that like to talk a little bit more about the work you do and or your stories and experiences with bravery? Well, rainmakerthinking.com is uh, our website. That's the best way to find me. Bruce T at rainmakerthinking.com is my email at Bruce Tolgan on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and of course, the books are available wherever books are sold. <laughs> there used to be something called a bookstore, right, where you could yeah. actually go in and pick up a book. I don't know if we're going to have those again. but Right, exactly. But, uh, well, thanks again, Bruce. We really appreciated your time today. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, Apple, Stitcher. We are everywhere. You have something to say yet are not saying it. You have something to do yet are not doing it. Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.